All right. Is there ever a scenario where violence can be condoned? My personal conviction? No. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I know because we ha we live in a society or in a world that violence is just become the day-to-day -day way of life. So it has crept so much into our lexicon, our behaviors, that it's now becoming something that we tolerate. But absolutely no. Well, let's talk about that. Welcome everyone to The Common Room. My name's Dan. I'm here with Samuel and Quincy. And today we're going to be talking about nonviolence and pacifism um, and our positions on that as Anabaptists. So this is, uh, well, let's just like address the elephant in the room. This is a pretty controversial topic. Um, I think the idea of pacifism, the idea of nonviolence in the world that we live in is a hard one for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And I think for a lot of people, the first question that pops into their mind when they hear pacifism or nonviolence is how do I stand up for myself in a situation where violence is being threatened towards me? How do I not respond? How do I, how do I stand up for myself without responding with violence? Mm -hmm. And we'll just start there. Uh, first of all, I will be speaking from a position of uh, being an Anabaptist. And from our Anabaptist understanding is Jesus is the center of our faith. Our community is the center of our life. And reconciliation is at the center of our work. And all of this put together gives us a perspective that means we cannot, uh, we operate predominantly within the framework of understanding the teachings and the ministry that Jesus demonstrated for us. And to do that, uh, I will personally say I can, I will be able to stand and we, one should be able to, out of this conviction of knowing that Jesus is at the center of our lives in general, means we will be able, one should be able to confront violence without direct human harm to the individual uh, perpetrating the violence. Mm. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I love that, and has been part part of my journey has been understanding the difference between being a, a pacifist and being passive in a situation. Where I think my understanding before I've I've come into this camp, so to speak, has been oh, to be a, a someone who's a pacifist is you're just you sit back and you let things happen, right? You don't engage in a way. Um, but having Jesus at the center is actually, and reconciliation as being that high mandate, it's actually no, to pa it, we're called to pacify. It's not, it's, it's not the same root word, right? Mm -hmm. Which was really helpful for me understanding. It's like, mm -hmm. it's to, to pacify and to be passive are two different ideas, right? One is, um, is, is focused on engagement to pacify is like putting a, a soother in a baby's mouth, right? right. It's like. It's like you don't you don't just let them cry themselves to sleep, but you pacify. It's an engagement, right? You put the soother in their mouth. Yeah. So there's like an actual an engagement with that. So, so, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I it does. I I. But I also 
my immediate question is like, okay, fair enough. Our, our job is to pacify, but like, how do we do that? You know, like the, there's in theory, it sounds great, but then I feel like when we take it into practical examples, it gets more difficult. Right. So, um, a common one, I guess would just be common, common instances of violence in our world. I think one that has been at kind of at the root of the Christian world for a long time is, uh, war, condoning war, condoning violence between nations, between people groups. Um, I feel like having conversations with friends, with family members, they're all, they'll always bring up world war II. Like that's, that's always, that's kind of the barometer for just war. I feel like in the modern context is, yeah. you know, we stop, stood up against the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't think of a more justified conflict. Yeah. Or can we, like, how do we, how do we approach a conflict like that and say, there was a, there's a different way. There's a better way of handling those problems. I think historically, uh, even if we go back to the tradition of our ancestors, uh, back from the, to speak in front of American Civil War, uh, most of the early Anabaptists did not participate in the American Civil War mm. because of their conviction. They engage in the Civil War in a different format, in a nonviolent way, by nonviolently directly engaging the status quo, the system. Uh, they are not. Pa they were not passive. Uh, they were not passive. They were not pacifying the system by being uh, the non-active, non-violence. But they were engaging by asking, "Are there alternative?" I remember the story of one of our elder. Uh, he's called John Klein in the history of the Church of the Brethren. Elder John Klein was the moderator of the Church of the Brethren in in the time of war. And what he did was he was a he first of all he was a medical doctor by profession, but the moderator for the Church of the Brethren. And so he traveled between the north and the south, ministering to even the injured armies, caring for the well-being of the Confederate soldiers as well as the Union soldiers, mm. uh, to the point that he was persecuted from both ends because he was considered a traitor from the north and a traitor from the south. But why was he doing that? He was doing that out of his nonviolence conviction that the church should stand and confront the violence even if it means uh, caring for those that have been impacted by the violence, but yet still not involved in a war mm. in that sense. And you go right through uh, the American history, the First World War, the Second World War. If you look at the Anabaptist historians, you can find out that a lot of Anabaptists did not voluntarily got drafted into the army. Right. Uh, Again, I remember historically in the Church of the Brethren up until the last couple of years uh, that I have been in the church, when I say last couple of years, in the last five years, when you turn 16, we take you through what we what we call the conscientious objection, uh, kind of almost a discipleship uh, part, uh, uh, process. And the reason is so you know that you are called to follow the teachings of Jesus, not to be engaged in any direct violence. So... Uh, the second, the first world war, second world war during the Vietnam War, many Church of the Brethren folks and Mennonite folks did not participate in this in, in being drafted, and instead they got sent to work in slums mm. by the U.S. government because they refused to be drafted or because they have their uh, CO status, and conscientious CO status is conscientious objection, and that status is still as valid as it is today. I know in the American context. 
I don't know about the Canadian context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think of the, uh, what's the Mel Gibson movie with the, the guy who becomes a medic and doesn't carry a weapon. Oh, um, Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. I mean, Mel Gibson doesn't exactly have the greatest track record of nonviolence, but <laughs> that movie stands out as an example in my head of that. Yeah. Yeah. Conscientious objector. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not standing by and allowing the war to happen, but but getting involved in the way that he could. Yeah, yeah. He he helps on both sides, I think, if I remember right. Like, yeah, yeah. I think he helps some of the Japanese soldiers out too. Mm-hmm. But again, I say this: uh, we are called to engage in a nonviolence direct way. Uh, I think passivity is just being nonviolence. Nonviolence with a dash hyphen in between. Mm. Non dash violence. Uh, and that is passivity. That is a sense of, oh, I'm not involved in killing. Uh, I'm not involved in uh, exhibiting any act of harm to anybody. Uh, it is based on the philosophy of kia sera sera, whatever will be, will be, mm. uh, which in its sense doesn't really address the uh, issue of violence that we faced. But as followers of Jesus, I believe that we are called to be nonviolent. A nonviolent. With, with no dash. With no dash. Just with straight one word. It's one word, uh-huh. nonviolence, okay. which is active. And this word nonviolence comes from two, a combination of two words. Uh, a Sanskrit word called um, ahimsa, a vow not to commit any act of harm. Mm. And the second word that, 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 that makes the word nonviolence comes from the root word agape. Agape is unconditional love. So when you combine the the commitment not to commit any act of harm or violence to any individual with the agape component, it makes it compelling enough to be active, to confront the system of violence, the system that tend to perpetuate violence and right the wrong so that peace can be the order of the day that's yeah that's profound and i feel like uh unfortunately non non dash violence is the uh i guess the more um it's like the default right yeah it's the default it's the more common example i guess that we get of of pacifism or non-violence is almost like a detachment from from the uh, from the conflict as a whole. Like, I like what you, I really liked what you said, uh, even before that about, um, you know, actively being involved, even if it wasn't, or, or in a nonviolent way, um, these Anabaptists historically who participated in the civil war, it wasn't as if they, um, held the, the war and the conflict and everything that was at stake at an arm's length and said, we're not going to engage in this cause we're nonviolent. They understood what was at stake, but they participated in a completely different way and arguably a, a more effective way um, by being actively involved, by participating, um, but without, you know, taking lives or, or, or causing violence. Mm. Um, yeah, I just think that that's like, that's a perspective shift for me at least. I think uh, the church has really, when I say the church, I'm talking about uh, the the church in general, not just our church, mm. uh, Christendom, we have fallen prey to the lexicon of violence and the lexicon of conflict. 
Uh, it's come, we've become so immune to it because it is so prevalent. It is in our day-to-day uh, conversation. So it's become part of the daily life. And so we look at the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we look at it and we say, yeah, Jesus, your teaching sounds good, but you know how difficult it will be to be able to live out that turn the other cheek. Uh, if, if, some, if they want you to go one mile, go extra mile. Uh, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. Those are totally countercultural mm. uh, because people will think, hey, what am I, a chop liver mm. or doormat? Right. Uh, but the truth is when you do that, when you go the extra mile, when you turn the other cheek, it is confronting the system of injustice against its head. Can you uh, break that down a little bit more about why uh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, why that is going against like the cultural uh, stream? Like, like what was Jesus like? What was the meaning behind that when Jesus said that? In first century Palestine, without giving you a whole lecture about this, because I know I can get into all this diatribe and start talking about, because I get passionate about some historical uh, history of Christianity. First century Palestine, when Jesus came up the scene, the Roman Empire was controlling basically the then known world. Mm-hmm. And with the Roman Empire, with uh, uh, the Roman Empire had every power, every power to just look at a Jewish or anybody that is not Roman and hand him his bag and say, I want you to take this. And you're allowed to carry his load. The maximum you can carry is one mile. But in order to push the system of injustice, Jesus says, go an extra mile. And by going an extra mile, the Roman might accept it, but you are pushing, going against the counter, the requirement of the law to say, I will do good to you. And when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, uh, Ken Bailey uh, had this brilliant, he wrote brilliantly about the history of the culture of the then first century Palestine. And he talked about when I when you slap somebody on the one cheek and he turned the other cheek, it is shameful to do use your backhand to slap someone. So you're humiliating in a way you're forcing the person that slaps you with the other cheek by actually confronting them without retaliating by slapping them back. So that's the the metaphor for turn the other cheek. When he says, love your enemy, when they ask, when they sue you for your coat, give them your tunic. Can you imagine that they, somebody who you owe a little bit of money and you know they already kind of control the, the merchant of the day and they sue you to take your coat? Jesus says, give them your whole tunic. So it is shameful for somebody to walk out in bare, uh, as in bare Adam and Eve. Wow. Uh, right? It, it will be shameful in society to see somebody walking out there naked because that rich merchant had just confiscated all of his clothes. Who's, who will be the one that bears the shame? Mm. That's the pa- person with the power over. Mm-hmm. And so in a nonviolent way, Jesus is saying, confront the system of injustice as it, as at its core. And nonviolence engagement calls us to confront violence as at its core. And that way, we're exposing the root cause, the underlying cause of all the violence we see in society. It's that's so interesting because it's like each of those examples causes self-reflection, which is never something you can expect from a um, adversary that you'd engage in violence. 
violence gives someone the opportunity to justify the way they've been treating you in the first place or to retaliate further, right? Mm -hmm. It's that cycle. It like never ends. Mm -hmm. Um, in this case, you've, it's almost like you've added two points to their side of the board and, and the imbalance of that feels so powerful that they have to look at themselves and think like, what am I doing? What, what have I done? I wasn't even justified in doing the first thing. Mm -hmm. And now they've given me even more. It's, um, it disrupts the game, right? Like it, it, and like, like you said, I like how you put that is it, it breaks the cycle or the circle. So you respond in a way, so an equal or usually it's above, right? Mm -hmm. If you have siblings and your sibling hits you and you want to get them back, you usually put a little extra on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And if it, and, and even if it is the same, how it's received is, well, that was extra. So now I got to get you back. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you get that escal- escalation. Right. But what you're, what you're talking about, Samuel is a, a disarming of that, right? It disengages. It says, no, we're not, we're not playing the tit for tat and, and escalating the violence, but we're diffusing it in a way. It's, it's so countercultural. Yeah. It's not the norm. Yeah. And because it's not the norm, it's jarring. Yeah. And with some, when something that is not the norm happens, you pay attention. And Jesus is causing, calling us to be disruptors. Wow. Yeah. Even that, I'm just, yeah, I feel like, you know, I've been, I've been part of an Anabaptist church for a while now, but like a lot of this is just food for thought even now. Just, yeah, it's, uh. It is so easy to, to fall into the pattern of logic that there are situations where you can find a justified way to stand up for yourself in a sometimes violent way. And, uh, I think, you know, yeah, this is giving, this is giving us some serious sort of, uh, self-reflection and thinking, you know, violence doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. I know that that's a cliche term, but like, it really doesn't, it actually just continues to make things worse. Um, I want to take this into a, maybe a more, a, a smaller scale type of scenario. And I, we've already sort of headed in that direction, but, uh, a common, another common rebuttal I'll hear to, uh, to pacifism, to nonviolence is, you know, what if you find yourself in a situation where your life is threatened by one other person or, or, uh, lives of people that you care about. Someone breaks into your house, they have a gun, they're holding this gun to your your family's head, what do you do in this situation? How do we approach that as Anabaptists? It is one of those uh, things that is, there's a situational and there's uh, life is at stake here. Mm. So what you need to do is how do you, 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 you have to think outside the box. There's no manual for here is how to respond when somebody has a gun over your head or have a knife about to stab you or threatening you for what you have. But you think outside the box, how can I connect with the humanity of this individual right in front of me? I read an article a couple of weeks back about an old woman in her 80s uh, who a young man, a young a teenager had just broken into her room and have collected, he knew where her jewelries were. He had collected all jewelry and he had a knife uh, about to, do, just getting ready to stab her. And she connected with his humanity and said, I know you're hungry. Let me feed you. And while, while she was feeding him, she called 911. Oh, wow. This is, 
you I'm sure I can find this link of the story and send it to, yeah. to you afterwards. Um, this is what we call you disrupt the cycle of violence by thinking outside the box. Mm. Think about the U.S. civil rights movement. How does a minority group make sure that the society etched and passed the Civil Rights Act mm. in a majority white society? King and his lieutenants disrupt the violence. I have been privileged to be mentored by two of Dr. King's lieutenants, uh, Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette and David Jensen. And I'm glad to say those two have impacted my life in a significant way. And they're in their late 80s now, but they're still alive. And I remember sitting under the tutelage of Bernard Lafayette when we traveled to Boston to Brandeis University. And he tells the story of when they were all arrested in jail in a in Selma, Alabama, and they will be singing in the jail, and the jailers will say, if you don't stop singing, we will put the light off, and they will still sing. If you put the light off, we will keep singing. And the jailers will say, we will take your toothbrush away. They say, we will sing with, even when you take our toothbrush on. Why are the jailers doing that? The jailers were threatening them and they were using, because the jailers themselves could not sleep so long as these young people are singing. So as a result of that, that, that countercultural approach, they appeal to the humanity of the jailers by saying, hey, you are human as us. We all want to rest, but we want to rest if you guys can release us to go home. And so it's the civil rights movement gives us a good recipe to see how you can disrupt a violence by appealing to the humanity on the, of the individual. Even when you lit, read the classical letter from Birmingham jail from King, I tell you, that's if you've not read the letter from Birmingham jail, read it. it. In that letter stands the greatest theological writings of Dr. King. Hmm. Though that teaching is so inspiring in, in many ways. And I think for me personally, it highlights the lack of that kind of life experience. And what I mean is like, I, I, and I struggle with this a little bit, um, because I have, I think I have the right words and the right understanding, but I'm not certain how I would respond being put in that position, right? Like I want to say that I would, but I don't know for certain how I would like, mm. so, so as, as I was on my journey to anabaptism and pacifism and understanding these things had an experience with one of my kids so and this is like there's there's a level of self-sacrifice i think that you're able to to exhibit right like not not my life but yours lord kind of thing like i'm ready to i'm ready to lay my life down i won't take a life but i'm, I'm ready to lay a life down for me but what if it's that scenario you put right done to the head of the people that you love yeah then it just goes in a different scenario so my daughter really really young taking her to school and you know it's lovely. She's got her lunch bag and everything else. She's going in the line, and a and a little kid sees her as she passes and punches her in the in the chest. Oh my gosh! And so it's a small thing, but it's like a a light switch went off in me. That and I'm not I don't I don't consider myself an aggressive or angry person. But have you ever seen? No, you wouldn't watch these terrible. But, but Kill Bill. There's a movie called Kill Bill that you shouldn't watch as an Anabaptist. But anyway, <laughs> there's like there's a moment where um, where the the main character uh, sees somebody who had done her wrong, and all these like alarm bells go off, and it turns red, red. And flash, right? Everything's red. Yeah. 
I experienced that moment. Mm-hmm. Like I experienced what that what did that movie in that moment to like a six year old kid that I'd never met before. Right. Of just like you hurt something like it's like you hurt an exterior version of my heart walking around. Mm-hmm. So that actually my response there, obviously I didn't, I didn't do anything in the moments. <laughs> I didn't act on that, although I did want to, but that actually, that actually, um, triggered in me that, oh, no, no, I don't have a right heart posture towards this, this idea of pacifism and, and, you know, like nonviolence because when I got poked in a, in a real way, that's, the, that's what kind of started coming out. So what I realized is, is that, um, it requires practice, right? Bingo. Yeah. 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 Like it's not something that we can just talk about and like talk ourselves into being it's actually, and this is, this is a hard thing, I think, but it actually requires us being in situations where we are, th- we're threatened or those that we care about are threatened. Yes. I don't like to say that, right? Yes. But, I, but I think that's the way. And I think to your point earlier about those civil, the civil rights, like there, there's real, there's real cost, right? There's real threat. It's prison. It's, it's physical violence. It's those things. It's that, is that, that's when you kind of know what's there. Like my auntie used to say all the time, she says, you know, what kind of tea you have when you put it in hot water, right? Like basically like, like a tea bag is just a tea bag, but once you put it in under pressure, then you, then, you know, is it peppermint? Is it chamomile? Is it, mm. so as, as those are the times when your when your faith actually gets revealed yeah. when when pressure real pressure gets applied so then the question is how do you practice that <laughs> yes. right uh, quincy i really like the analogy you've just used with the tea bag uh, the civil rights uh like the freedom if you watch the freedom riders uh, the movie the freedom rights or freedom summer hmm. you will see the rigorous training that these young people had to go through simulation of practice but the truth is even those those simulations of practice when they came to the real life situation they were never told that bull Kana is going to release water hoses on mm-hmm. them yeah they were never told that bull Kana was going to release uh police dogs after them and this are six teenagers yeah but the, all of that happened but he is the underlying principle that really kept them guard, like hinged. Uh, nonviolence practice is hinged on six principles, and you will find those six principles in uh, uh, Dr. King's book, Stride Towards Freedom. You'll find it between, it's layered all across the book, but you'll find it particularly in chapter four and five that he lists out the six principles. And the six principles are kind of like point them one after the other. And, it says nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It takes courage to be nonviolent. Mm. It yeah, takes not weakness, right? Because yeah. I think we I think we we misunderstand that that to be passive means that you're no you're very weak or that bravery is always associated with like violent fighting. Fight, yeah, 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 yeah. It takes courage to be nonviolent yeah. because it means dying to yourself and doing the countercultural expected thing or the norm. And the second principle is the beloved community is the framework for the future. So when you think about the beloved community, that even that person that is trying to harm you has a potential to be in that same kingdom. Mm. Revelation 7, 9. And I look and behold a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every language, every nation gathered around the throne. That means my enemy 
has a potential of being there. So when I think about nonviolent practice, I'm constantly imagining the beloved community as the framework of what I do. And the third principle says, attack forces of evil, not the persons doing evil. Mm. There's always an underlying condition. What is the underlying condition of why evil or why violence? When you look at a lot of underlying condition, when you when you look beyond the veil of the violence, honestly, the underlying condition, it's always heartbreaking. You realize that somebody, something somewhere had happened and that individual is hiding under the underlying con- condition. It's like the classic, a bully is a bully because they've been bullied, right? Like yes. people do bad things because bad things have happened to them. Yeah. And mm. sometimes even the system of injustice, the system of oppression is created in such a way that in this case, let me give an example, like with the police, the law enforcement and the minority uh, people of color. The truth is the system is the problem. And the officer that finds herself working within that system is stuck with the system of injustice. So blaming the police officer does not solve the problem. But addressing the systemic injustice of what creates that police officer and holding that officer accountable under a just law is what you look for. Principle number four, it says accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause. So that means you might get beaten. That means... That's the hard one, brother. Oh, it is. I tell you. Yeah, that's the hard one. And this does not just happen. I like what you say. It is practice, practice, practice. And then principle number five says avoid internal violence. I avoid internal violence of the spirit to yourself. I could have. I should have. Oh, suck. I missed it here again. Because the tendency is you tried it and it didn't w- work out the way you thought and you start second guessing yourself and the principle says no avoid those kind of internal blame to yourself and then the last and the sixth principle says the universe though the arc of injustice may bend but justice will always prevail mm. by and by the kingdom of God will the shalom of God's rule and reign will be the end of it all I may suffer through this but I know the shalom kingdom of God is coming. Yeah. It's it's um, it's values like that that just underline to me the strength it takes to have this perspective, to hold this perspective, because it requires such um, such a deep level of, I don't want to boil it down to just optimism, because it's trust. It's trust in God. Mm-hmm. It's not just hoping that things are going to be better, but it's really trusting. Um, but it can be hard to believe those things. You know, it can be hard to believe that the arc of, of justice heads towards good. It can be hard to believe that like, you know, at people at their core are good, uh, times two, right? Like I think if you hold a different perspective on either of those two points, it can be very easily, easy to choose a violent path Mm -hmm. because you may believe that people are ultimately flawed or people are ultimately evil, or you may believe that like, I mean, it's all through the Psalms, right? David, um, sort of screaming to the heavens about how the just or the unjust always have it Mm -hmm. best. And, um, the, you know, the wicked prosper while the, while the good, uh, struggle. Um, it's hard to believe that things are headed. Yeah. In a, in a positive direction, but 
really that is kind of the key to unlocking this uh, the strength it takes to be to be a pacifist to be nonviolent. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Sorry, I don't know if we're moving way off topic, but I'm just remembering a, a family, uh, really, really awful situation. Um, young girl, 13 years old, um, single mom, and uh, the 13 year old was raped in their apartment by somebody that they that they knew, and um, fortunately, uh, he was caught and tried. And I remember like being with the family um, beforehand, and um, like while like while the judge was deli- like the the judge was deliberating on what the sentence would be, and I remember having a conversation with mom, just saying like, "There isn't um, there isn't a ruling that's going to give give you back what's been taken, mm-hmm. you know, like because it's, it's this idea of vengeance or justice or the thing that you know we want things to be fair." And then sometimes things are taken from us that there's no there's no punishment that someone can receive that will restore things. Mm-hmm. So as we like, we're just preparing for the verdict. And if it was like he gets off scot free or he, he ends up spending time in prison, I said, "There's nothing. Whatever comes isn't going to be satisfying for you if that's where you're looking for your satisfaction. But instead, trust that to the, to your point, right? That justice will be served. Like justice will be served by a good judge." Mm-hmm. Right, like mm-hmm. to trust that that there's I like that God God will set all of the scales right, you know, in the end. Yeah, and I and I think I think that conversation helped. He ended up spending time in prison, which was good, but it wasn't enough, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, and she knew that, but there was I think I think there was a sense of peace knowing that that the the whole arc of the universe is moving towards a just place, right, of healing and restoration, like that we don't necessarily get to experience in this world, mm. right? But to, but to trust that that's true, mm-hmm. right? Regardless. And it's just, it's, it's, it's brutal to have to work through that, I think, in the moment, especially when something so precious had been, had been robbed. Mm-hmm. Um, but to know that there's, there's, there's hope in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I hear things like that, like this story, my heart is broken. Uh, that such an innocence can be taken away from somebody in such a very young age and against their will. And that's why the, the evil in each and every one, the, the propensity for violence in each and every one of us want to go, let's get justice. Yeah. Well, we know that may be momentarily. Yeah. Uh, but the best is to trust in God's justice, even though the person uh, get, their t- get to serve their time but yet it gives me hope. Maybe I'm too Pollyannish here. It gives me hope that uh, the justice, eventually a greater justice will come. But we get to participate in practicing what, how do we bring that greater justice even in our lifetime here mm. through nonviolence, direct action, righting some of the wrongs that are trying to right a wrong that has been committed, mm. trying to address systems of oppression by really ad- and helping the system to understand that this system is oppressive and trying to just practice the, practice the best we can of our understanding of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I I just want to, like, I think that this this is really good and we've, we've kind of gone on the, uh, on this, um, or we're headed in this direction, I, I feel, of talking about, you know, 
in order to do this well, we need to be able to find ways to practice, mm -hmm. to practice nonviolence, to practice, um, uh, well, reconciliation, but I feel like that may be a subject for another time. Um, how do we, how do we get practice? How do we, um, find ourselves in circumstances where we can put some of these, these values to the test? Um, I, and I realize I'm kind of putting you guys on the spot with that question. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Uh, uh, for me, as again, I'm not trying to market myself and sell sell you a bill of goods because you ask a question, so I'll give you an answer. Sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I do, as even as I work at the meeting house here, is I still go out there and work with community groups, work with churches, work with police departments and help them begin to practice. What does it mean to do nonviolence policing mm. or community policing? Uh, I have a couple of cities in the U.S. that I'm working with directly that I do a training and give them a little bit of a practice test. Six months later, I come back and check on them. How is that going? What needs to be tweaked? And I do the same with churches and community groups. And one of the most recent that I've done is wrapping up a work with the Nigerian government on how to deal with radical Islamist jihadists. Uh, how do you use nonviolence to address radical jihadists? And that goes back to a just war theory we yeah. began with. Uh, in the beginning, the military, I, when I introduced the concept of nonviolence approach to addressing radical Islamist jihadists, the Nigerian army thought I was this, something is wrong with me. Hmm. Because first of all, the language that the army understands is the language of guns and tanks and more guns and more tanks. And so the military tend to get a blank check from the federal government. So basically my idea of introducing nonviolence is simply saying to the, to the military, you're no longer getting a blank check. So I'm confronting the issue of blank checks and I'm confronting a system of violence. Glad you made it home, brother. Yeah. <laughs> That's how risky it is. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but <laughs> after two years of interacting with the Nigerian army and the Niger the, the, uh, the underground radical Islamist jihadists, we can all come to the, we all came to the conclusion that nonviolence is the way of the future. Mm -hmm. And so they have adopted a way of how do we look at, they're now investigating what is the underlying condition that is creating radic radicalization. And radicalization can be in many forms, not just radical Islamist jihadists, but gang membership, drug dealership, yeah. uh, all the, the, the things that are counter the norm in society. Nonviolence becomes an antidote to addressing all of those challenges. Mm. So even in your place of work, if you're having conflict, you can use the same principles of nonviolence to address those workplace conflict. So all this to say, Dan, we, have, we can offer a couple of workshops. There are places that you can take training and workshops just mm -hmm. to kill yourself in nonviolence. Yeah, that's been helpful for me. Like my, to answer your question, of uh, first getting an idea of my own relationship with conflict, how um, 
like my natural response, right? When conflict comes. So just being self-aware, I think is really helpful as a starting, as a starting place on how to, how to practice. Yeah. Once you have an understanding of your, for me anyway, once I have a, I have a good understanding of how I respond, what comes out when I'm putting the, 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 the hot water, then you can, um, then begin to find out, okay, so what's an appropriate step for next, right? Like what, what's, what are my blind spots? What are my weaknesses? How do I address those things? What are the things that I'm actually good at when I engage and like, and focus on some of those things? Right. There's, there's tools there for that. And then it's, it's actually, it's actually being bold enough to engage conflict that's already in, uh, existing in my own relationships. Yeah. So not, uh, Boko Haram, like, you know, like, uh, Nigerian military, uh, militaristic, uh, terrorists, but in my own relationships at home with my, with my wife and my children mm-hmm. is like, there are, there are things there that come up in conflict. There are opportunities to, to practice these ways of, of peace, even in my own, without, without leaning, you know, bending over or, you know, being a doormat, but it's like, how do we engage in this way that's healthy mm-hmm. and constructive, right? Knowing my weaknesses, my shortcomings, and then having grace, right? It's seeing to like how to approach in a Jesus way. But that, that my, what's been helpful for me is just, and there's plenty of tools out there where you can find out your own personal conflict style, right? Like how you, how do I address conflict? We've done that in a workshop, I think. Yeah. 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 So it, it's helpful to know, to know who you are, how you best respond, how you respond at your worst. And then, um, and then, yeah, there, you don't have to look far to find conflict in your own life. Right. I think that's so important for us to, to keep in perspective here because we've spent so much time today talking about like outright examples of like visceral, you know, life, uh, lives at stake type of violence, Yeah. but violence, um, or, or peacemaking can happen in, in very kind of domestic type of situations where yeah, it's literally just a disagreement, right? I'm not He's, calling my wife a terrorist. <laughs> I want that to be on your record. <laughs> no, but this is, yeah, this is really good. It's it, because we're not all going to find ourselves uh, necessarily at the front of a picket line, although right. that that's, you know not outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. Um, but we do interact with, uh, we have, you know, we live with people, we live, uh, we interact with people on a day-to-day basis and we have relationships with people and peacemaking can be practiced even on that small of a scale. Um, and also just again, to, to go back to that teabag scenario, like actively thinking about actively thinking about how we'd respond in situations who, what is the, like, what kind of person do I want to be Yeah. in, in that hot water, mm-hmm. in that crisis? And, uh, like, I know I don't think about that very often. So, uh, I think I, I will be after this conversation. Absolutely. Um, guys, this has been really good. We've covered a lot and I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. So, uh, I think we'll have to, we'll have to save this for another episode. Beautiful. beautiful. Thanks for being here today. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks for having us. Thanks, Will. Yeah. yeah. Luke. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you all on the next episode. Peace. Peace out.